Hi, this is Larry Phillips, Managing Editor at Richland Source, and I'm joined by our City Editor, Carl Hunnell. Uh, we're a couple of guys who've been in town for low these many years, more than 30 years, more than 60 years combined between the two of us, and uh, we've, in that time we've had the opportunity to be in town for one of two trials of the century in Richland County, and this week at uh, Richland Source we're going to talk about one of them, and Carl was here for and on the reporting front line for the other one. So, in, in investigating these two stories, the Sternbaum case from 1952 and the Dr. John Boyle murder case from 1989, uh, we've had the opportunity to see what Mansfield considered uh, their two show trials, um, as we mentioned, trials of the century. And the Sternbaum case is the one we're going to dive into uh, in Richland Source daily and talk about it in a four-part series. But uh, in doing that investigation, doing that reporting, going back and looking at that uh, information, uh, thanks to the Sherman Room at Mansfield Richland County Public Library, we noticed a lot of com- commonalities um, between the Sternbaum and, and uh, Dr. John Boyle. And so we thought we would... Uh, kind of go through those a little bit today um, just because it is so uh, intriguing kind of an odd topic but uh, an interesting one too and uh, Carl we were talking before the the show began that uh, you were here for that that was uh, you considered it uh, one of the highlights of your journalistic career I uh, was being on the Mansfield News Journal team that covered that um, can you talk a little bit about the frenzy that was uh, surrounding the Boyle trial in in 1989 yeah, well, 1990. I'm sorry. Yeah, the the uh, murder occurred in December of '89, but right. the trial itself occurred back in 1990. I've, I mean, I've been doing this. I started the newspaper business when I was a freshman in college in 1979, and I never saw anything before that, and I haven't seen anything like that in terms of, uh, you know, kind of spellbinding interest in an entire county. Uh, went well beyond that. We had radio and TV from Cleveland, Columbus, uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, had folks down here every day. Uh, Of course, that's where uh, Boyle uh, buried the remains of his wife, was underneath the basement of his new house there in Erie, Pennsylvania. So they were naturally very interested in it as well. And it was just a, you know, I was young at the time. Well, I don't know if I was young. I would say I would have been 29. So young by today's standards, but... uh, (laughs) You know, we had some very, very talented journalists at the Mansfield News Journal that covered that. Guys like Steve Hudak and John Fuddy, uh, of course, Tom Brennan, uh, uh, kind of the legendary editor at the News Journal that kind of pushed the whole thing. Uh, Jim Crummel was our uh, managing editor. Uh, photo editor was a guy named Alan King. We had some great photographers shooting that. Uh, and I've never seen as many resources thrown into a uh, particular trial. And I don't think I ever will again, as we did in that. I mean, this was a month-long trial, Monday through Friday, four consecutive weeks. Uh, WMFD had just started uh, that year. And talk about fortuitous timing to be a local TV station. Uh, They did live, uh, not live, but every evening they would rebroadcast that day's testimony. And it was, I did a story during the trial. I was out at a park and it was... I think they started at like 7 o'clock at night, and I remember specifically there was a woman there with two children, and the kids were playing on the swings, and her mother, or their mother, looked at her watch, and she goes, come on, we got to go, Boyle's about to come on. <laughs> like I mean, it was a soap opera. Yeah, it, 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 exactly that. I mean, this was a famous, well, not famous, but well-known, prominent 
uh, osteopathic physician here in Mansfield. Uh, they lived in a very great neighborhood. Um, you probably are familiar with that neighborhood. <laughs> uh, you can explain more about that yourself. Um, but, you know, they had the idyllic family. They had a son. They had an adopted daughter from China. These were people that on face value, this was the perfect kind of family. Uh, obviously, under the surface, there was a lot going on. But, you know, the fact that he murdered her in their own home uh, in Woodland, uh, put her body in the back of a Range Rover, drove it, I think it was like a four-hour drive to Erie, uh, took her down to uh, jackhammered, rented a jackhammer here in Mansfield, which was kind of key to uh, the whole trial or part of the trial. Jackhammered up the basement floor, stuffed her body in a tarp in the hole, uh, reconcreted over it, uh, put indoor outdoor carpeting over top of that, and then put a shelving unit on top of that. He truly planned to keep control of the key evidence in that case. So yeah, it was it was a crazy time uh, in Mansfield in 1990. And in and, and in a similar vein, it, but in a in a different medium, um, the Sternbaum case was was much like this. And in, in 1952, the murder happened in uh, um, at midnight, much like, exactly like uh, Boyle, right around midnight, um, December fourth, 1952. Um, the the uh, defendant was Carl Sternbaum. He was the son of a lo- local grocery store magnate. He was the treasurer of the company of uh, Sternbaum's uh, grocery chain. And uh, that particular night, he called his wife Leah, uh, asked her to come and asked her to come and get him. Um, he, he frequently worked odd hours; it was quieter in the office at, at night. And uh, Leah came to get him. Uh, in the meantime, between the time he had called her, <clears throat> she lived. Uh, the family lived at 212 Richland Avenue, so uh, just off Sturgis uh, here in Mansfield. And in the 10 minutes or so it took her to get uh, to Vale Avenue, which is right around the corner from the Friendly House. Um, Carl's story was, I'm sorry, Max's story, Max Sternbaum was uh, the defendant. Max's story was the two uh, armed men came in up from behind him in the office that somehow broken in quietly, uh, told him to stick his hands up and robbed him of uh, the $60 and his watch that he had on him. Um, one of them said, hey, someone's coming. And the next thing Max knew, uh, he had been hit over the head. And when he came to uh, the grocery store, the office were, uh, I'm sorry, the grocery store office was on on fire. Uh, he crawled out amid um, the smoke and the flames, and and he as he was crawling out, he noticed a lump uh, to his left as he crawled out the door. He assumed that was his wife, although that's kind of a sticking point. How would he know that was his wife? He allegedly didn't actually see her. Um, but anyway, uh, that was the beginning. And then uh, a year and uh, six weeks later, again, uh, the quote-unquote trial of the century began here in Mansfield. Max was charged with first-degree murder, uh, arson, and an, a, a three-week uh, trial ensued. And uh, again, the Mansfield News Journal was a central player here. Um, coverage was wall-to-wall daily. It was banner headlines every single day of the trial. Uh, some days there was a verbatim testimony published on the inside pages of the news journal and uh, at the end of it um, different than the Boyle trial we had a, a different verdict um, Max Sternbaum was found not guilty uh, Dr. John Boyle is still serving time uh, for murdering Marie, Noreen Boyle um, but but the, the uh, to me the 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 things that these two cases had in common are, are striking and I, I kind of wrote them down here 
Uh, like we mentioned before, both uh, both murders took place right around midnight. Um, John Boyle and Noreen Boyle's... Uh, uh, John Boyle was convicted of killing Noreen Boyle around uh, New Year's Eve, right around midnight. Um, Leah Sternbaum was murdered uh, early morning, just after midnight, December 4th, 1952. Um, 37 years apart, both victims were the mother of small children. Leah Sternbaum was 31, a uh, very small woman, uh, about five foot, about 110 pounds. She was the mother of three small boys. Uh, she was, her cause of death was um, multiple skull fractures. Noreen Boyle's cause of death was strangulation. Um, both were obviously homemakers. Um, they had preteen children in the home. Uh, they married uh, local prominent professional men with budding bank accounts. And uh, both of their husbands were were running around on them, uh, flandering husbands who were each charged with their respective murders. So s- very similar cases, uh, separated by 37 years. But um, just the, the commonalities here are striking. And each of these cases really captured uh, the public's attention. Carl mentioned uh, the frenzy um, for, for Mansfielders to get home and watch the WMFD coverage. And I, I was interviewing here at the News Journal at that time. And... I remember that. I, I remember staying at Carl's house, and and he he and his wife Marcy were up <laughs> watching wall to wall coverage of of what had happened at the Boyle case that day. And the same thing was true, um, obviously in a different medium with Sternbaum, in that um, one day, it, it, uh, actually every day, you had to be there in time to get a seat in the small courtroom. There were 67 seats in the courtroom. If you wanted to see the case, uh, you had to be one of the first 67 people in the courthouse. So they had people lined up um, two, three hours before the trial uh, to get into the courthouse, rush up the stairs. Uh, The courthouse was on the second floor at that time. And one day, uh, I'm not I think it was February 17th, but I'm not sure on that. But one day the frenzy was so strong to get into the courthouse that they ripped the doors off the courthouse, uh, off off the room uh, to the courtroom inside the courthouse. So the the, the, uh, soap opera kind of atmosphere was obviously uh, in play that year also. Um, It's kind of hard to imagine. Again, these were people standing in line outside the courthouse uh, in February, sometimes uh, well below well below uh, freezing temperatures. Um, I think one time it got down to four degrees, and they still had people standing in line waiting to get in uh, to see the trial. And in both cases, uh, we mentioned there were other women involved uh, for both defendants. Um, In the Sternbaum case, uh, the other woman was. allegedly Max's jilted uh, lover and she her testimony was uh, what triggered an indictment and um, and was really the the uh, kind of the turning point of of the trial as well in that the jury apparently did not believe her story so um, the the commonalities are are really interesting I, I think it's hard to capture um, the frenzy that was around them, but but I know it was alive and well in, in Mansfield uh, for the Boyle case. I was here to see a little bit of it, and uh, Carl, you talked about how 
the coverage was was so extensive and I, I, it might be difficult for uh, a listener to understand what it's like for a small newspaper to throw multiple reporters at it, but it wasn't just the people who were at the courthouse. Um, maybe you can explain your role um, in, in that coverage. Yeah, during the trial itself, I mean, you also have to keep in mind, at that time at the news journal, in the newsroom, we probably had, and the people who aren't familiar with it would have no idea we probably had more than 50 people working in the newsroom so yeah it was a smaller newspaper but we had we had enough resources for it Uh, the plan each day uh, we were an afternoon newspaper at the time which meant we printed uh, kind of late morning so every day we had uh, like steve hudak and john fuddy up at the courthouse Uh, steve was the primary coverage john was there to assist John would watch maybe the first hour or so as much as he could if it started on time of testimony. He'd then exit the courtroom, call me on the phone. I would take notes from him. Uh, I would rewrite uh, the top of the story the two of them had done from the day before. Uh, It was was called deadline writing, which is something that people don't really seem to worry about much these days with the Internet. But it had to be done. I, I don't remember exactly the time, but it was done in a hurry. And every day we would publish that newspaper late morning. It was, you know, afternoon delivery, but it had uh, testimony that that occurred that morning. You know, you were talking about similarities between the two, and it's really interesting. Back in 2018, when Collier Boyle's documentary uh, came came to town, uh, Collier being, of course, John Norian Boyle's son, uh, you asked me to do a story that kind of looked back and kind of captured uh, those moments. And one of the first people I called was, you know, defense attorney Bob Whitney. Bob was uh, John Boyle's uh, primary uh, defense attorney, along with Charlie Robinson. So I and I knew if I wanted to get great memories, I needed to talk to the principals. And there was nobody bigger than Bob and, uh, at, at that time. So I called Bob and I said, hey, Bob, you got a couple of minutes. I just want to talk to you about the trial of the century. And he didn't hesitate, and he said, sure, you're talking about Sternbaum, right? <laughs> and in 2018, I had no idea who Sternbaum was. But after Bob said it that day, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to look that up. But, yeah, I mean, Bob was a young man, but he said, yeah, that was, you know, Sternbaum to him was the trial of the century. Uh, but, yeah, he, uh, he did a great job. I mean, Boyle was hard to defend because the physical evidence was kind of overwhelming. Uh, led by the fact that uh, her body showed up in the basement of a house that you were buying in Erie. Uh, Dave Messmore, uh, the police uh, lieutenant at the time who was the primary law enforcement officer, had the rental receipt from when John rented the jackhammer here in town. Uh, they had the receipts from when he bought the uh, indoor-outdoor carpeting. I mean, that was all there. And then during the trial itself, uh, you know, some interesting moments. They actually fired up the jackhammer in the courtroom uh, during the trial, uh, which prompted uh, Judge Henson, Judge James Henson at the time, to say we're probably going to get evicted. But uh, Jim Mayer was a prosecutor, and he wanted to show that this was indeed a working jackhammer. Uh, They also uh, pulled the tarp out of a bag that Noreen's body had been wrapped in. Uh, Jerry Alt, who later, who recently passed away, became a municipal court judge. He was the assistant prosecutor at the time. And he goes, you know, we didn't think about in advance what that might smell like when they pulled that tarp oh. out of the bag, but it was uh, pretty overwhelming. Um, and then, of course, the ultimate came when John Boyle decided to take the stand in his own defense. 
Bob Whitney and Charlie Robinson, especially Bob, both advised him against that because he did not have any alibis. Uh, he was notorious uh, in his way that he interacted with the truth. Uh, so he took the stand. Bob asked him some questions. He denied doing anything. And then came a, you know just epic, epic testimony, cross-examination, when Jim Mayer basically just ripped John Boyle to shreds. Uh, he exposed lie after lie. I mean, John Boyle lied about so many things. I mean, he even, he even lied about being a uh, Navy combat fighter pilot. I mean, this guy lied about everything. And Jim Mayer just reduced him, showed the jury exactly what he was. Uh, you know, in Boyle's case, they deliberated six hours on a Friday before the verdict came in mid-afternoon. And I have no idea what they talked about for six hours <laughs> other than perhaps what are we going to have for lunch? Because I, you know, it was open and shut. Uh, Jim Mayer and Jerry Alt did a spectacular job. Uh, Dave Messmore did a great job in terms of collecting evidence against uh, against Boyle. Uh, and yeah, it was interesting because when the verdict came out, uh, Tom Brennan had told us, hey, if we get a verdict by 3 o'clock, uh, we're going to do a special edition. And today, I don't know if a lot of folks know how rare that is, but I don't think the News Journal had done a special edition since, I think it was the end of World War II, if, if then. I don't remember exactly, but it had been a long time. And the idea was we would have Hudak and Fuddy uh, in, in the courtroom, and they also sent a couple other reporters, really good guys, Paul Corbett and a guy named Bentley Boyd. Uh, they were in the courthouse that day. And the idea was once the verdict came in, uh, they would work uh, as reporters gathering information and they would call that information back to us on the phone. Uh, There's no such thing as texting and uh, sitting in your, on, on your laptop in the, uh, in the courtroom filing from there. So the phone would ring. People would hand it to me. I'd talk to, a, I'd talk to one of them, hang up. Another one would call. We'd get them. And when it started, Brendan said, we got 30 minutes. Go. <laughs> and I think I didn't notice it at the time because I was listening. You know, other reporters were taking calls, handing me notes. And my job was to take all of this, put it into a story. And we remade the front page and a couple of inside pages for the extra edition. I didn't notice it till after I got done and I yelled across the news editor at that time was a guy named Dan Kopp. And I said, Dan, you got it. And I sat back in my chair and I kind of looked around. I had no idea there's like 20 people. Watching you type. watching me type. And I don't type good. <laughs> I mean, I don't type well. I don't type. I, Carl's I, a, a one-finger oh, typist. To, I'm up to two, and sometimes <laughs> I'll hit it with a thumb. But no, I'm not a classic <laughs> typist. But we got this special edition out, and it was so funny. Uh, Alan King was our photo editor, and he designed pages. And Alan was a wonderful visual guy. Uh, type was not Alan's strong suit. So we had put the uh, the last plate had gone down to the press, and we were sitting there waiting for the press to start. And all of a sudden, Brennan gets a stricken look on his face, and he looks at Jim Crummel, the managing editor, and he said, did anybody check to see if Alan spelled extra right? <laughs> so Jim raced downstairs to the press room to take a look at the plate to make sure that he had it, and thankfully it was there. So the spe- I think we, I forget how many thousands of special editions we printed, but I remember there used to be a newspaper drive-up box on 4th Street uh, at the, by the alley at the News Journal. And within minutes of papers being put in that box, there were cars lined up on 4th Street all the way to Simpson, within it was Simpson Middle School, right. of people waiting to buy that edition. I think thousands and thousands of copies of that paper sold that day. Uh, that, that's interesting. You talk about how 
the news journal did an extra i don't i couldn't tell really from uh the Sherman Room archives. If an extra was done for Sternbaum, um, a little different scenario. There, they jury reached a verdict after almost exactly 13 hours of deliberation. It came in at 10:50 at night. Um, so I don't know if it was the next morning's newspaper that I saw, or I, I would assume that that was probably the case. Doesn't really make sense to do an extra at at, at 1 a.m. Yeah, when that, you know most people were asleep anyway. So I'm assuming it it, it kind of fell. Uh, correctly for that, but but you mentioned another point uh, in talking about Bob Whitney and 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 the job that he was kind of given an impossible job, and I wonder if if Bob rated Sternbaum uh, maybe a, a touch higher than Boyle because he appreciated the the job that the defense did in the Sternbaum case. Um, that was a case that that most will tell you was was won by the defense attorney, a guy named Paul Herbert, uh, who was at that time um, the retired lieutenant governor of the state of Ohio. He went on to be an Ohio uh, Supreme Court justice, and uh, his lawyering was even lauded in the pages of an uh, editorial of the News Journal uh, for the professional job that he did. Again, uh, Max Sternbaum also took his... Uh, his uh, took his took the stand in his own defense what i'm trying to say um he was a much better witness obviously than than uh, dr john boyle was uh, max's story never wavered uh, he had the same story all the way through um, the authorities and their defense really did not have a lot of physical evidence remember this is the days before dna um, there was blood involved but uh, it was not um, compelling physical evidence that they were able to work with um, again, there was a fire that burned up a lot of evidence, including the body of the victim, Leah Sternbaum. They had uh, they had her body, but uh, it was charred, and and really um, gathering evidence at the scene was not uh, was not the same as it was for the Dr. John Boyle case. And so, um, Paul Herbert's uh, defense he had a much easier task than Bob Whitney did. Um, I uh, I don't think from the way you explained it, Carl, that there was a lot of um, surprise when, when when the guilty verdict was rendered against Dr. John Boyle. No, I don't think anybody there was surprised, but I think one of the interesting comparisons or c- contrasting things with Sternbaum and Boyle is, uh, nor- sorry, I have a little trouble with the headset, Noreen Boyle kind of disappeared on New Year's Eve. Uh, it was her, it was her friends who reported her as a missing person to police. Uh, Boyle himself, when he was contacted by police, tried to say that uh, they'd gotten in an argument and she had just left. Uh, it wasn't until her body was discovered, and I think, I think her body was not discovered until like January 25th. He was not arrested until they actually found the body. Uh, Dave Messmore, who investigated, one of the things he told me in 2018 was when he began looking into this and he had uh, friends of Noreen telling him that she would not have just left her family. That didn't happen. Uh, but he was not encouraged by anyone uh, in the police department or anywhere else uh, to pursue an investigation against John Boyle because he, so, he was so well thought of by so many people in the community. Um, so it wasn't until Noreen's body was actually discovered. He went to Erie along with uh, along with Jerry Alt, who was the assistant prosecutor at the time, uh, and they were the ones who got the search warrant to look in the basement. And Dave told uh, tells the story 
when he be, he began to wonder if she might be there when he was talking to the real estate agent who sold Boyle the house. And Dave asked her, did you remember anything unusual about the conversation you had w- with him? And she goes, well, he did ask what was underneath the basement. And she said, well, you know, why, why does that matter? And he goes, well, I'm thinking about lowering the basement floor to give my kids more room to like play basketball and stuff inside. And David said, okay, well, why is that so unusual? She said, well, it already had a 10-foot ceiling. (laughs) And this real estate agent looked at David and said, oh, my God, you don't think she's there? And David said, yeah, we're going to get a warrant. So that was kind Uh of interesting. But like I said, he was not physically taken into custody until they found the body. It didn't happen for almost a month from the time she disappeared. Mm-hmm. And uh, with Max, uh, it was about 10 months later, um, an indictment was returned. The murder happened uh, in December of 1952. An indictment was returned almost exactly a year later. So um, the the grand jury, I'm sorry, was impaneled in, in November. Um, he was taken into custody in December, and then the trial ensued a couple of months later. So um, it, it was one of those scenarios where there, uh, I, I don't get the impression there was overwhelming shock at the verdict in the Sternbaum case, but yet it was surprising. Um, the, the community had heard a bunch of testimony. The community had kind of made up its mind that Max probably did it, but that the, that the um, state really hadn't proven the case with physical evidence. Uh, there was a lot of, of circumstantial evidence, a lot of circumstantial evidence that, that uh, did not look good for Max. Um, he was obviously uh, playing around on his wife, and they had receipts uh, from everywhere uh, about where he was um, with the other woman. And um, he eventually ended up marrying, quote-unquote, the other woman's best friend um, just a couple of months after the trial. So it was not a uh, a, a scenario where you were you were uh, thinking, oh, this is a slam dunk, but yet it was nagging enough in the community. And again, this is this is not someone the community wanted to think poorly of. Um, the Sternbaum family had been in town for oh, probably uh, I think they came to town in 1917. Um, they had they had a budding grocery store business. Uh, the youngest Sternbaum child had uh, was a son who had been killed in World War II. Um, uh, Max's father, Carl Sternbaum, donated the land uh, that the Friendly House sits on today. Um, so th- this this was a well-liked family in the community. It was a prosperous family in the community. And, and nobody wanted to think that anybody in the Sternbaum family could commit a crime like this. And, and so I, I think there was uh, maybe even just, a, a, and again, it's hard to get a sense from, from a newspaper clipping from 70 years ago, but there was almost a sense of yuck, but relief. Um, too at the same time it's kind of strange um, very different from the from the Boyle case I think it was probably a relief uh, the Boyle trial finally ended and and also the the jury came back with a like you said a pretty quick verdict on that yeah six hours I mean one of the things defense attorneys will tell you and obviously I didn't cover the Sternbaum trial I'm 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 not that old but um, <laughs> when it comes to a crime like a murder uh, of, of of a spouse you know, if there is, if there are adulterous affairs, if there are things like that going on, and the, the prosecutor's trying to use this to paint all of the, you know, that he's a bad guy, like he was cheating on his wife, he was doing these things. But the bottom line is, yeah, adultery is bad, but it's not murder. Exactly. And it's, it's also not evidence of, right. It, it, it can be a motive. Right. And you've got to prove, uh, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt uh, to a jury 
that a murder actually occurred and that this defendant committed that murder. I think in the Boyle case, it was the physical evidence that was just absolutely overwhelming. Even though for many years, uh, John Boyle denied that the body they pulled out of the underneath the basement was actually Noreen. Uh, he said that was not her. Uh, there's a lot of post-trial things that went on, but I remember going to interview John on the 10-year anniversary. He was up at, I think it was Warren Correctional Institution, and I want, we were doing stories about the 10-year anniversary, so this would have been 2000. And he agreed to meet with me, and uh, we were sitting in a room, and uh, just he and I, of course the door was closed, nobody else was there, but I'd never felt in danger for anything. And when I was talking with him, I, as, as you do as a reporter, you save kind of the, the what you consider to be the toughest questions for last. You know, you want to break the ice, you want to chat. I mean, John was and is a very intelligent guy. You don't become a doctor with, unless you're a smart person. He's very well-versed. He speaks very well. Um, so we just had a conversation. And then near the end, I started asking questions about the murder itself. And I said, kind of the last question I was going to ask is, so... John, why did you kill your wife? And he looked at me and he didn't blink. He didn't hesitate. He said, I didn't kill my wife. I mean, he is such, at that time, such a pathological liar. I think you could have hooked him to a lie detector test and he probably would have passed. I mean, it wasn't until just a few years ago that he even admitted that, yeah, we got into it that night. And he said, I pushed her and she fell and she hit her head. And she died, and I panicked. He's never, ever, ever admitted to the facts of the case. Which is uh, that she was strangled to death. Right, and he was denied parole again in 2020. Um, and until, I mean, parole boards are, are not hard to figure out. Step one is admit what you did, apologize for it, and convince us that you've moved on from that. So until that day comes, John Boyle will never Get out of get out of a state prison. He right. will die there right. because he. I don't think he'll ever admit that. You mentioned uh, kind of in in passing that uh, I had a connection to the case. Uh, actually, I've had connections to both of these cases, which is what made it compelling to me. Um, and the John Boyle case is the reason I came to Mansfield. Um, Steve Hudak was the lead reporter for the News Journal at the time, and he was covering the John Boyle case in spectacular fashion. And Steve did judge did such a fantastic job that he was snapped up by the Cleveland Plain Dealer, which created an opening at the Mansfield News Journal. And I was uh, interviewed and was subsequently hired as soon as uh, Steve left town. So <laughs> in kind of an odd way, the Dr. John Boyle case is how I ended up in Mansfield. And, and to make things even more unusual, um, I ended up uh, to this at this uh, time, I live in a home next door uh, to where... Dr. John Boyle murdered his wife, Noreen. Um, I've been through the house. Obviously, our next-door neighbors live there. Um, but it, it is kind of eerie uh, to have that kind of a connection with this particular case. And then in the Sturmbaum case was one of those stories that uh, the News Journal, I believe it was 2006 or seven. Uh, the News Journal was on the 75th anniversary of the newspaper. And looking back at some of the biggest stories in the 75-year history of the News Journal. And, and that's how I stumbled across the Sturmbaum case in the first place. And went through the archives a little bit over there and and uh, went through um, kind of the research process. And, and I just wrote one story uh, kind of encapsulating the trial and and uh, the not guilty verdict and that uh, 
that uh, Max Sternbaum had had been found not guilty uh, of quote unquote the trial of the century at that time. And the story ran, and and a few days later, I had a call. Again, this is uh, in in the early days of the internet uh, at the News Journal. At that time, we didn't even have caller ID, um, so I just answered the phone. At that time, I was local editor at the News Journal, and uh, the caller at the other on the other end said, uh, "I'd like to speak to Larry Phillips." And I said, "You're talking to him," and and it sounded like a young woman's voice, and uh, she said, I wanted to talk to you about the Sternbaum case. And I said, yeah, that was really interesting. You know, I kind of enjoyed uh, doing the research for that. And she goes, well, I'm Max Sternbaum's granddaughter, and this is the first I've heard of any of this. And I was taken aback um, immediately and kind of stunned. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think she was, too. Um, obviously, she was uh, when she had read it. But I... I I kind of stumbled through my words a little bit and, and said, that, wow, I'd, you know, I'd really like to catch up with uh, what happened to your grandfather after he left Mansfield. Um, Max ended up leaving Mansfield. He resettled in uh, Miami, Florida, and lived out uh, his days there with his new wife, and they ended up having a daughter. And, and I really didn't know what had happened to him at that time. And uh, she said, well... You know, I really want to talk to my mom about this first before I talk on the record for a newspaper. And I said, you know, I understand that, but please call me back. And and like I said, I didn't, I didn't have caller ID. I was not able to get her, and she didn't want to give us her name. And so I never really knew um, who this was, uh, if it was authentic or not. I think it probably was. Um, kind of be an odd thing to make up. But um, anyway, we were never able to connect again. And ever since that. Uh, phone call, which was about 17 years ago now, um, I have always been interested in that particular case and, and what happened to Max Sternbaum after that. And, and we'll talk about that in the series, too, uh, at the end. So anyway, I, we, we're glad you joined us. Um, just wanted to talk about Mansfield's two trials of the century. And be sure to read uh, Richland's source this week for a four-part series on the Sternbaum case. And if you enjoy what you're reading, uh, please think about becoming a member at Richland Source. Um, you know, this kind of reporting uh, isn't free. Um, we need your support. Uh, we appreciate it and uh, we're glad you're here with us. Thank you.